Patrick here with some exciting news. We now have 10 local communities of engineering leaders hosting in-person meetups all over the world. Yes, you heard that right. There are 10 local communities in cities all over the world. These groups are led by engineering leaders just like you who wanted to create a place to connect, to share insights, and tackle critical challenges in the job. To get involved, go to elc.community. Sign up if you haven't already. If you have signed up, make sure you update your location and we'll get you plugged in. We're launching local events all the time. You can find them and get involved again at elc.community. The competitive advantage is not for a leader to say, why did it take so long to restore this issue or, or resolve this outage? A competitive advantage is, oh my God, that is amazing. Tell me what made this hard and what are any of the things that made it difficult to resolve this? Is there anything I can do to help get out of the way for people to, to do the work? Hello and welcome to the Engineering Leadership Podcast brought to you by ELC, the engineering leadership community. I'm Jerry Lee, founder of ELC. And I'm Patrick Gallagher, and we're your hosts. Our show shares the most critical perspectives, habits, and examples of great software engineering leaders to help evolve leadership in the tech industry. This episode is going to challenge the way that you think about incident analysis and incident response. We're joined by John Alspaugh, former CTO at Etsy and current founder and principal at Adaptive Capacity Labs, to discuss resilience engineering and learning from incidents. We're also joined by special guest co-host Kenji Kiyuchi, head of quality and performance at Postman. And the topics that we get into with John will flip many of your assumptions and beliefs about incidents and is both part philosophical disruption as well as a few different tactical things that you can implement to become a more resilient engineering org. We cover some of John's favorite unintuitive perspectives within resilience engineering that impact incident analysis, strategies for effective incident response, how to identify your current sources of resilience, and John shares practical tips to implement resiliency tactics in your engineering organization. A quick intro to our co-host, Kenji Kiyuchi. Kenji is the head of quality and performance at Postman. His focus is on innovating the practice of testing. So you can see why this conversation was especially relevant. And Kenji brings a ton of his personal and real life experience to this conversation to help guide us. Let me introduce you to John Allspaugh. John has worked in software systems engineering and operations for over 20 years in many different environments. Before Adaptive Capacity Labs, John served as CTO at Etsy. His publications include the books The Art of Capacity Planning, Web Operations, as well as the foreword to the DevOps Handbook. His 2009 Velocity Talk with Paul Hammond, titled 10 Plus Deploys Per Day, Dev and Ops Cooperation, helped start the DevOps movement. Enjoy our conversation with John Alspa. We have Kenji Kiyuchi joining us. First off, just wanted to say welcome, Kenji. Thanks for joining us as a co-host. How are you doing? Absolutely. I'm doing fantastic today, Patrick. And it's a pleasure to be here and uh, really excited for the conversation. Fantastic. And we also have our guest today, John Alspa. John, how are you doing? I'm doing great, actually. I'm doing um, a borderline irritating with respect to being uh, uh, enthusiastic. <laughs> that is the the type of energy I need every Monday morning um, since we're recording this on a on a Monday. So um, I love that. No one's ever come with that type of enthusiasm to the kickoff. Well, of you know, it's 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 all uh, it, it, it's also you know impressive and very cool. Except um, you haven't worked with me. 
So um, <laughs> uh, if you can find any of my uh, long colleagues from Etsy, then you, you, they would say, yeah, I get it. Yeah, he's excited and he's enthusiastic on Mondays. Enough. <laughs> <laughs> I relate to that. I think there's a lot of people who would have a similar perspective with my energy coming in on a Monday morning. So um, I think we're, we're on the same light wavelength right now. Well, John, we're, we're here. The intention behind our conversation today is to tackle a couple different topics. Primarily, I think the, the goal is to help engineering organizations respond to incidents more effectively. And we we've have a couple ideas for what that might look like in our conversation today. But I wanted to turn it over to Kenji, who has been spending a lot of time thinking about this space. And, and this is his world every day. So Kenji, why don't you kick us off? with uh, with our opening question. Yeah, absolutely. So just a little bit of background. Currently, I'm head of quality and performance over at Postman. And one of the things that we're doing as a current initiative is kind of reviewing our uh, incidents response process and how we can learn from that. And so it dovetails really well into the conversation that we're going to have today. And uh, really excited to learn from you today, John. That being said, I'd love to kick us off with kind of direct question. But can you tell us a little bit about the last time that you brought down production? <laughs> we all have some similar experience and, and stories that I'm, and I'm curious, like, yeah, when was that last time? And how did this shape your interest in resilience engineering? Well, what, a, what an excellent question. Um, and it offers some avenues here for me. What's production, for example? Um, you know, I, so I've been doing consulting for about, oh, about five years, almost, almost exactly five years since I left Etsy. I was at Etsy for seven years. Uh, and a bunch of other places before that, production in adaptive capacity labs has been mostly on um, a whole bunch of, um, well, we have, we develop a bunch of tools for ourselves. We have no intention of productizing these. These are tools that most organizations wouldn't know what to do with them anyway. And I'm an operator of them as well. And so, um, you know, I, you know, all of the, does it have a lot of people using it? Like, when I was working at Etsy? No. Is it important? Is it critical in order to get a project done? Yes. Um, and so you can think of tools that do automated transcription, right, of interviews and a whole bunch of other sort of incident analysis um, stuff. And as you might imagine, um, all of the things that normally bite you in organizations like SSL certificates and DNS and databases and caching and all of that sort of stuff. I would say the last time in public was actually at Etsy, probably for real. I'd say probably, yeah, it was a, it was, it was a long time ago um, because I did a very good job of getting myself out of production. But I used to work at Friendster and I worked at Flickr. And so I can't remember. There were, there's too many stories <laughs> uh, I can't remember the last time. That's my answer, which is it's too hard of a question to answer, I think. Fair enough. No, I think there are certainly lots of examples that we could all draw upon. But I'm curious, certainly having these kinds of experiences have shaped uh, your interest and passion in this particular domain. And I'm curious, what was it that kind of drove you initially into resilience? It's not incidents that got me interested in these other these fields, human factors and resilience engineering, cognitive systems engineering, naturalistic decision making. These are all isolated and separate fields, but they're all related in various ways. It wasn't an interest about how things break. It was an interest in how the hell we're so good at doing what we do. It is what goes into making it such that teams, when they're faced with a, a really tricky, I mean, like really what one colleague has called a spicy incident, um, is how rare they are. And how it only took 12 hours to get back up. How 
fascinating it is that it only took 12 hours because the fact of the matter is all incidents could be worse. What is it that makes them not worse, as bad as they could be? And that's what drove me. The cop-out answer, of course, is expertise. But that's really what drove me. You know, I, when I was at Flickr and first starting to read a little bit about, there was nothing in software, you know, there's nothing in computer science journals or books, nothing in software engineering, and nothing about that because it's not about software engineering or computer science. It's about cognitive work. It's about understanding problems. It's about problems, what goes into problem solving. We like to think that debugging is like the way, the problem solving solving approach. That's not true at all. Diagnosis is only just a portion of what the hell to do about this thing that you now understand is can be just as difficult as understanding what's happening to begin with. And so that's what I that's what really got me into to that. And, and that's what resilience engineering is all about, which is less it's not about understanding what makes things go wrong, and then try to fix that. That's a sort of a traditional conventional view. Resilience engineering is trying to figure out, trying to understand all of the things that make things go well and amplifying that up the good rather than minimize the bad. And very interesting. And it definitely hits um, a note there uh, with regards to maximizing the good. I think a lot of, at least in my own personal experience, individuals might be drawn towards this kind of domain because they want to minimize the bad, right? It's like, wow, that was a really painful experience. How do I, how do we never go through that again, right? And so a lot of times yeah. it's a, it's an incremental buildup of pain to some degree. No one likes being on call and getting pinged at three in the morning and having to deal with production level incident or otherwise. And so we try to work our ways towards making sure that doesn't happen again. But to your point, right, it's like, how do you push things up the chain, uh, especially on the good, on the side of good to become more resilient? That being said, can you tell us a little bit more about complex systems, right, and how that relates to resilience engineering? Resilience, in a resilience engineering perspective, um, without getting too in the weeds about it, is about adaptation. It's not about prevention. It's about the conditions that allow adaptation to take place. And have a shot at being productive, uh, valuable. You don't need adaptation if there isn't uncertainty. If, you're, if there's certainty, you don't need adaptation because you're certain. There's nothing to adapt to. Disruptions, surprises don't appear because there is no ambiguity, right? Ambiguity, in, uh, when, when people say complex systems, they love to think about it in ways that really sort of equate to, oh, it's really complicated. And, or I just don't, it's hard to understand, right? If the three of us have attempt to solve a problem and Patrick solves it almost right away and you and I struggle with it, right? We're probably going to tend, you and I, can you just to say that the problem was really complex. Patrick, maybe not have said it was really complex, has nothing to do with the problem. We all have the same problem. Patrick had an easier time. So when people say complex systems, what they really tend to mean is this baffles me or I just, I don't understand what's going on here. Resilience is about conditions and the things that are needed to adapt to situations that cannot be foreseen, that aren't foreseen, which means that resilience can't play out. If you can imagine it and you're anticipating it, right? You have a database, you've got a primary and a secondary. That's a demonstration that you've imagined a world where you might need the secondary. You have a spare tire in your car. It's a situation where you can imagine a situation where you might need that spare. Having the spare doesn't help you 
if you're in a traffic jam. Doesn't help you if you're lost. Doesn't help you if your engine is kaput, right? Having a secondary doesn't help you if you've corrupted all of the data, right? Absolutely. So it's, if, I'm, if I'm listening well, it's um, not the known unknowns, but about having, say, systems or processes in place so that you can uh, recover or adapt to the unknown unknowns? No, no. I'm going to say, I'm going to, uh, I really hate unknown unknowns and ah. known unknowns. <laughs> and it's a completely unuseful mm. because if we were to be real clear about it, who knew? Turns out in complex systems, diversity and adaptation and interdependence is across multiple agents. Then who knew known unknowns? Who knew it, right? How did they know that? And who knew that they didn't know? So it doesn't, so set that aside, right? It's not about all processes either. Because if you can put a process in place, it means that you, that to solve a particular situation, should it show up, it means that you have anticipated it, which means resilience is no longer in play. Robustness is in play. Robustness is really important. It's critically important, obviously. But resilience is about fundamental surprises. Things that you did not expect could happen. Or a situation where you are overconfident that a thing is taken care of, right? Uh, another colleague mentioned like the difference between a, reg a, a situational surprise and a, and a fundamental surprise is that a situational surprise is when you buy a lottery ticket and you win the lottery. A fundamental surprise is when you win the lottery and you didn't buy a lottery ticket. Oh, I love it. And that's a fantastic uh, analogy that really helps kind of, I say, shape uh, the definition there, especially with the difference between robustness and, and resilience. Is there an, an example that comes to mind that can help illustrate this within the, within the world of, of software engineering for, for folks listening in? Because when you're talking about the difference between resilience and robustness, we'd love just to get a, an example to help anchor our listeners. Sure, sure. Let's take a terrible one. I mentioned earlier, sometimes, you know, you may have a bug and it corrupts data. You have databases and some, you, some, and of course there's in modern days, these days, uh, a database is not a database is not a database, right? Sometimes you may have, you could argue that a, if you've got an entire cluster of memcache or something that's only in memory and cache of data that's in a database, you might also have a data warehouse or something that's for analytics and that sort of, and, and I'm, there's lots of um, your listeners, I think have experienced situations like this where there's something wrong with data that's in a particular database. If you're able, if, if you have expertise on hand, something that can, uh, someone or a group of people who can make use of copies of that data in other systems to reconstruct the previously. So uh, cache is a good example. If there's data that's cached and you've just for some reason, there's some sort of corruption or whatever, or something screwed up, whatever. You can't use this data anymore. You've got copies of the data everywhere, or you might have copies in other words. How long would it take you to reconstruct that data from these other places, right? It's not a thing that's done often because it doesn't usually happen all that much. Well, I think just to, to relate to that one a yeah. little bit. So it's like having sort of like the cognitive adaptability and flexibility to understand that that's an available pathway and an available solution if that particular problem arises. Yeah, yeah. And I, to be, I would just say more just say expertise, but it's not just expertise. Mm -hmm. It could also be that you have a process in place for just for this job and, you know, written down in some sort of um, BCP situation. And so you start trying it. And you're like, this is going to take days. This is going to take a week. You know, well, 
actually, can you break the rules? If you've got an opportunity to break the rules, you can do that easily. Then we would say that's, that might be a productive adaptation, right? Uh, another, you know, there's, I have all kinds of other examples, but it's not just about having somebody who knows how to do a thing. It's about uh, taking advantage of conditions such that you're able to do that. So for, there's a, a, a sacrifice decision is, a, is, a, um, is an example of this. And we've written a blog post about this. Uh, a number of years ago, the New York Stock Exchange, three, four hours into trading, halted their entire systems. They had some evidence that were they to let trading go on, that data would be no good. They didn't have perfect evidence that that would be the case. So what should, would you do? Keep it up and risk the possibility that trades will be all screwed up and you're going to hear it in the news and blah, 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 or take it down in order to, to prevent things ruining, to go through it, spend time to do it. Also, you're going to hear about it, right? So which is it? And they decided to take it down. It was absolutely an amazing decision. And we, we sent a edit, my colleagues and I were sent an edit, an op-ed suggestion to the New York Times that it was an amazing because it was in spite of the sacrifice that they had to make. Of course, they decided to run a different one, which is those idiots, they can't believe they, which basically just, you know, put the CEO of uh, NICE under, you know, under fire. But it was an amazing idea. It's easy to say you have resilience when things are going well. That's not resilience. Resilience is something that you cannot economically justify having prior to needing it. And it happens. There's examples of it all the, way, all the while, right? But we just don't think of it that way. So a lot of what we're talking about and a lot of what's about resilience and a lot of our work we do is that this stuff is unintuitive. You just shared a couple really unintuitive perspectives. And I, th I think we're going to be continuing to peel back layers of, of how these things show up within the, the context of, of engineering. To continue down the rabbit hole, Kenji, I wanted to turn it over back to you with the, to dive in a little bit about like common challenges, because I think that'll help us continue to peel out some of the unintuitive perspectives within this space. Absolutely. So I think to the point that John made earlier, it's not necessarily just about having the individual who knows what to do or the process that they can follow. But if I was listening well, like how flexible can a system be to address the challenge at hand? And so one of the things that um, I've certainly experienced is there isn't a playbook, there isn't a runbook. I don't even know what the heck is going on. There might be six or seven layers uh, that I have to dig through to understand like what the root cause is. And uh, I'm curious, perhaps John, you can walk us through some, whether it's practice or learnings um, that you can take away so that teams, individuals, uh, organizations can achieve incrementally increasing level of resilience. Successful organizations already have sources of resilience present. Identifying what those are is critical. Why? Because you run the risk, especially if you're in charge, of doing something that gets rid of it. This may come to a shock, but in successful organizations, hands-on practitioners do things, a lot of things, that are useful, valuable, critical to the business success, and leaders have no idea that they are doing it. If everything's working and nobody notices, right? Well, if, and if everything's, yeah, and that's the thing. That's what resilience engineering is, is everything is working and you should go notice. And that's a competitive advantage. The competitive advantage is not for a leader to say, how did it, why did it take so long to restore this issue or, or resolve this outage? A competitive advantage is, oh my God, that is amazing. Tell me what made this hard 
And what are any of the things that made it difficult to resolve this? Is there anything I can do to help get out of the way for people to, to do the work? Different people will, the, the other answer to a question that you didn't really explicitly ask, but that, that you touched on is that you're exactly right. There is no playbook. People solve problems, right? A playbook, a runbook is written by authors who imagine a world where people will need to follow a thing that they, they are writing down. Expertise is going to a runbook and knowing absolutely accurately, you're damn right I'm not going to go with step five this case, this time around, because if I, I'm skipping step five, why? Because I know more about the problem that I'm trying to solve than the person who wrote this, right? The rest of it's great, but I'm going to skip step five. Now, what did I just say? I'm literally saying that it's great when people don't follow procedure. And why? If they do step five, well, you got a good chance of screwing things up and making it worse. Why? Because the person who wrote it isn't the one, isn't you. And so looking for those things, looking for those opportunities and throwing out the idea that you can have a process. A process is a way, is, is a word that people use to feel more comfortable about uncertainty. That's all it is. Go to any organization where engineers are doing code review and ask them what process they're following. Ask them what runbook they're following. And they'll look at you like, how can I stop talking to this person? Because they don't know what they're talking about. They don't follow a process. If they follow a process, it's looking at the code and looking and then like insert a bunch of vague, does it have the right syntax or does it follow our styles? Whenever that's none of that is specific enough to really be called a procedure or, or a process in the way that we like to think about it. And so part of, on the one hand, trying to look for what's, what makes people good at the job that they're doing already, genuinely understanding that even if you don't if you don't understand it to begin with and making it such that they're protected that whatever they're doing to keep things working is protected that you don't you, know, that you don't want to take away from that so identifying sources of resilience is what the resilience engineering field which is a field that's been in play for 22 years right software is only in the last 5 years come into contact with it identifying what's already present. As my colleague Richard Cook had said, the resilience is coming from inside the house. And it's very easy, especially for leaders, like, oh man, we've gotten beaten up in the press because we've had lots of outages. We're not very resilient. Bullshit. You absolutely are resilient. It's the resilience you have that's made it such that you are even successful enough to warrant attention in the press. <laughs> if you're not successful, you don't get bad press because you're Terrible. Like you're not worth spending the ink on, if that makes sense. Absolutely. No, that's a fantastic point. Things to mind, well, not to draw parallels, but with previous experience when I was working at Twitter. Uh, mm -hmm. And I guess in general, they say, you know, no news is, is generally bad news, right? So having some level of news is generally good. Patrick here with some exciting news. We now have 10 local communities of engineering leaders hosting in-person meetups all over the world. Yes, you heard that right. There are 10 local communities in cities all over the world. These groups are led by engineering leaders just like you who wanted to create a place to connect, to share insights, and tackle critical challenges in the job. To get involved, go to elc.community 
sign up if you haven't already. If you have signed up, make sure you update your location and we'll get you plugged in. We're launching local events all the time. You can find them and get involved again at elc.community. You touched on your former colleague, Dr. Cook, and uh, I know that they, uh, in their practice, had identified lots of unintuitive perspectives in the world of resilience engineering. And I'm wondering if you could share a few of these unintuitive perspectives with us. I mean, Richard was was one of the OGs, was one of the founders of the field of resilience engineering. Along with my other colleague, David Woods, um, those two alone did a, such great work to entirely flip the script. You know, this, I, and I mean, what I mean, flip the script, I mean, take what continuous deployment did to software and multiply it a couple of times. And that's what they did in aviation. That's what they did in medicine. That's what they did in power plants, in power transmission, uh, in space as well. I would say one of the, the most, you know, the most unintuitive flips, there's too much. We don't have enough time for me to go through what Richard has put together. You know, this idea that Murphy's Law is wrong comes from Richard, comes from one of his colleagues, Larry Hirshhorn, that Murphy's Law is wrong. What could go wrong almost never does. Almost never does. I mean, when I say almost, that's not giving you enough. I mean, what other fields out of software uh, measure success by how many nines inhabit decimal places after 99%? Right? Does dentistry do that? Does the electrical druid do that? They actually might. But the point is that it almost never does, but we don't, cons- we don't tend to pay attention to that. One thing that's quite powerful in res- with respect to understanding incidents, to make, to make real productive use of incidents, it's a trick. Incident analysis that Richard, myself, Dave Woods and some others have been spending the past five years on is really just an excuse to understand how they don't happen, not how they happened. So you can go and fix that, right? It's trivial for an engineer of any kind to write some code or application or build some infrastructure very quickly and have no idea how it works. They're the author, the creator, and they have no idea how it works. The way you find out is when shit breaks, right? <laughs> and so what's one of the ways of getting in there? Well, you, I can't get, you know, I can't gather a bunch of engineers at the end of every day and say, all right, everybody, let's list out all of the ways that the site didn't go down today and understand how that happened. You can't do that, right? First of all, to be a Terror, it would be the longest meeting. You would never go home because there's lots of reasons for that. How do you understand that? Well, when an incident happens, nobody really blinks when they say, oh, I think we should spend some time trying to understand that. Great. So nobody's like, oh, I want to make a meeting. Okay, great. Let's make a meeting, right? It's an excuse. Nobody's, nobody blinks an eye. But when you're in there, you're making good use of that. And what are you doing to make good use of that? Well, the unintuitive thing that Richard really and continues to blow my mind is that the resolution, the completion, the outcome of an accident, an incident ought to be considered separate from the performance of the people handling it. And Richard said it in this way, and I can't make it better. I, this is like one of those things that I kind of wish I said, you know, it's just, a, it's a, it's a song I wish I wrote. How can you tell the difference between a, a difficult case handled well or straightforward case handled poorly. On the face of it, that question is very reasonable, but it introduces something. 
what was difficult about resolving an incident. It very rarely gets any attention. I mean, the fact of the matter is most important stuff don't get very much attention in post because people don't do anything. They write up incident documents. They write them to be filed, not to be read because they don't because they're terrible. So that definitely resonates. I've seen, uh, certainly my experience, tons of, for example, RCAs that are written up, right? And they, to your point, right, get filed away. Well, they get filed away because they're following some sort of template, which is dumb. So what can teams or organizations do to, to change that? Understand what's, what was difficult for people. What was difficult? We talk with organizations all the time, and they want us to come and consult with them, do a project with them. And we always ask them the same sort of questions where we get to know them. Wow, tell us what happens after an incident. Oh, we do this, we do that. And we do, you know, and they'll introduce, you know, they'll say all sort of the cliche, oh, you never want a good, let a good crisis go to waste. And we always want to <laughs> learn, make, want to always extract some lessons. They're like, ah, okay. And so do you, you have, oh yes, we have a meeting, something we have a postmortem, we call it a learning review or a post-accident review or an after-action review, doesn't really matter. They'll call it something. And then, oh, you, and then you, write a report, right? Oh, yes, we write a report and whatever. Oh, and then we put them on the wiki. Oh, yeah. Oh, great, great. And we say, oh, that's fascinating, fascinating. Who reads them? We get either, ah, it's a good question. I don't know. (laughs) And the reason why people don't read them is that even the people who have tried to read them don't learn much about them. And we know that they're different than the people, if you were to ask, uh, Kenji, have you you been involved in responding to an incident in your past? Oh, absolutely. (laughs) <laughs> yeah. And if I were to ask you to tell me a story, any story of an incident that has come to mind, don't worry, I'm not going to waste your time now to do it. Although I really do want to, but you're going to tell us a story. And I'll tell you right now, without knowing what that story is, it's awesome. You're going to tell us a story and that story is excellent. And then if I were to ask you, could you show us, Patrick and I, show us the write-up that is about that incident. Would we find something different between the story you told and what's in there? What's on that in that document? The answer is yes, of course. But we'll remember your story. The way you tell a story makes it likely it, because you're going to include good stories have three act arcs, mm-hmm. right? Good <laughs> stories have, and then there was this, and then you'll never guess what the CSS was referring to a CSS file that wasn't there. So it threw a 404 using the same CSS. And everybody who's listening goes, oh, what? Right? And I'm aware of that story. We, that's, that's a good story. Different, different time, a real incident. But the point is, is that you cannot say you've learned something if you cannot remember it. When we say learning from incidents, we mean literally learning. Oh, yeah, we're very good at learning from incidents. Okay, great. So who responded to this incident right here? Oh, I don't know. What do you mean you don't know? Ah, what was hard about it? No idea. I could tell you what the customer impact is. Okay, fine. Do you remember the incident? Kenji, when I asked you for an incident case, when I said, you probably know a lot of incidents, would you be able to tell me the accurate customer impact of that incident? Certainly not. We could, we could measure it. We could say like, here's the downtime. Yeah. Sure, sure. <laughs> but that's not what people remember. And so the thing that, coming back to your original question, Richard and his colleagues outlined it quite clearly in their book, Behind Human Error, which if you haven't read is consider it required reading, is to separate uh, the performance that people exhibit in solving complex problems, especially together, this is a team sport, from the outcome, right? Good problem solving 
abilities can result in terrible outcomes. And terrible problem-solving abilities can result in amazing, amazingly great outcomes. But that's really, that's inconvenient because it doesn't fit in my little, I can't put that on a wiki page. I'm definitely going through a does not compute moment with that. Yeah. I, and as you should, and that's the thing, there's the best thing is anybody who's ever b- faced a, a really tricky problem palpably, viscerally understands you, you have personal experience. Some things you can fix them. I've given this question to a room full of like thousands engineers at a conference. There can be sometimes nothing more unnerving, unsettling than something, than an incident getting fixed and you don't know why. I've certainly, I certainly had that experience as well. Like, oh, it's terrifying. Completely broken. All the alarms are going off. And then all of a sudden it's like, oh, Working. Who who did what? What changed? <laughs> no idea. To to that point, right? And, and certainly, uh, like a does not compute moment. How do you let go of your previous perspective and and beliefs, like when the unintuitive ones prove true? You know that is the that's the trick, right? Couple ways I would answer that. First is we, especially in the world of software, the history of software is is filled with nothing but nothing but paradigm shifts. And I mean real paradigm shifts. And I mean genuine Thomas Kuhnian paradigm, not just like, oh, that's different. There was a world, I'm old enough to remember that the way a significant part of the industry measured value by the number of lines of code. This was a thing. There was a world before version control. The entire Apollo mission happened without version control. Frankly, they probably did have version control. I just don't, I just don't know the details around it, but they probably did something. But lines of code makes, makes no sense whatsoever. Agile, DevOps, continuous deployment, containers. You can come up with a list of these types of events, these types of discoveries, I don't know, discoveries, um, developments that significantly influenced, right? So the first is, know that this is just one in a long list. It just so happens that it's not specific to software. Um, the other is we've made some progress by talking about things that matter and things that are palpable and real. Nothing solves debate like working code. And so we don't spend too much time with clients trying to convince them that their old way of thinking is wrong. Because if you win that, they're going to still have an answer of, okay, then what's an alternative? And unfortunately, that can be really depressing because then if you don't have an answer, then they say, okay, well, it's going to go back to doing the old thing. But you just, under, you just were convinced that it doesn't work. Yeah, but at least we got something that doesn't work better than having that than nothing, which is depressing. So instead, what we do is work with them on an alternative. And if the alternative doesn't work, very well, then frankly, maybe it's the alternative is not that good. Um, I don't usually worry about that because the bar is so low. I mean, look, people don't have to let go. As soon as, you know, a lot of resilience engineering, the new view, a lot of what Richard did in his career, and a lot of these new perspectives, change is afoot. It's been afoot for a while, for five plus years now. And so you don't have to. Change. You don't have to continue doing whatever you're doing. Your competitors are hoping you're going to continue doing what you are doing because they're going to do some things differently. That's what I say. 
that certainly resonates, especially when it comes to, again, proposing those alternatives, right, uh, as, a, as, a, as compared to nothing or how easy it might be to just revert because we have something that doesn't work, but, you know, it's better than nothing kind of mentality as well. Yeah, yeah. And again, it's pretty easy. Like somebody says, oh, I think the five whys are amazing and it's super great. And I think that I think that measuring the amount of time it takes to resolve things and averaging them in a moving average and, and having, let's say, taking the mean of that and we'll measure that and that must mean something. It's sort of like neither of those things are valuable in the way that people understand them to be valuable. They are valuable in anchoring discussion to get them asking very reasonable questions about, oh, who got to ask the why questions? Oh, does it matter? Maybe it, does that matter? It must matter. Does that matter? Oh. How come this, what about this incident that, that it was detected that an incident started and ended in the past? Wait, you have a negative TTR now. Oh, you just want to throw that away? Oh, you just, you know, just, just dismiss that. Let's not include that. Oh, that seems kind of arbitrary. Oh, so also tell me more about that. So we don't, yeah, I, I think that the answer is yes. We don't, it doesn't help. I and mean, certainly kind of waste of time. If somebody's so set that they are right in a particular way and they believe a particular thing and they cannot be, you know, convinced otherwise, then fine, good, good. I don't worry about the viability of my business. John, we only have a, a few minutes left. I wanted to ask one more question to sort of wrap up some of our topics. And we have a couple rapid fire questions. You'd shared a, a number of different unintuitive perspective shifts and a couple of things that I think people can really implement right away around the question of like understanding what was difficult for people through the experience of the incident or why did something not go down? Understanding what was difficult for people in any of those processes was is a really powerful question. And then the other concept that stood out to me was evaluating success and separating that evaluation of success from the incident resolution and from the performance of the people, I think is also really a, a really interesting paradigm. Is there any final pieces of advice for engineering leaders who are looking to improve resilience or response to incidents that would be sort of under the camp of maybe instantly implementable or very tactical? Well, there's so many, but I'll give you, I'll give you probably one of the, probably the strongest ones. If you're an engineering leader, protect whatever channels people use, some Zoom or Slack or whatever, IRC or whatever, make it such, just as an experiment for a quarter, make it such that people, especially leaders and especially yourself and leaders who report to you, don't be in the channels with people who are resolving the outage. Don't be in there. Have somebody who can come and tell you about the status of things, but don't be in the channel. Even if you believe in the most benign way possible, you just want to be there to help. You are never right about your presence and how it influences people in how they resolve and respond to and coordinate with each other in trying to make sense of what's going on. So if you've got a incident channel, here's a suggestion, do it for a month. Don't have any leaders in that channel. And in fact, prohibit people. Unless you're hands-on, literally hands-on, don't be in that channel. That's probably one of the quickest ways, quickest ways. The second thing that nobody will do, I can tell you right now, nobody will do it because it's the, the most grief I've ever gotten, is if you are requiring your organization to report to you as a leader, metrics like severity and MTTR and MTT mean time to whatever, pause it, suspend it for even a month. The numbers don't mean anything and the numbers are gonna go up and down 
Nothing about reporting those numbers will make your organization better at resolving or handling surprises. So don't do it for a month. See what, see what happens. Fantastic. Thank you, John. I think I can see Kenji's wheels turning because he's in the process right now of, I, how would you describe it, Kenji, like reconfiguring the incident response process? Oh, absolutely. No, certainly shifting shifting my mental model uh, based on the conversation today, right? I think um, with regards to that unintuitiveness, one of the things that I think leaders and in engineers in general tend to potentially over-index on is, are those metrics themselves, right? So it, <laughs> it's like, oh, I have a number. Look, it's pretty. Look, it's going down or it's going up. And that's that's a good sign, right? Yeah, yeah. And I, as a recovering CTO, I'll just say, of a publicly, <laughs> of a publicly traded company, um, if you're going to do that, then make it such that all of your hands-on engineers can write reports about attrition in the company and use the rates of attrition as a way to measure the performance of a leader. Oh, they, oh, they wouldn't, oh, they probably wouldn't like that. Oh, it's big. how come? Yeah, exactly. Sorry. <laughs> you got me. I was enthusiastic. I think maybe salty was really the word I was looking for. I love that. I love that. John, we've got a couple rapid fire questions uh, if you're ready for those. Hit me. All right. What are you reading or listening to right now? I am rereading Using Language by Herbert Clark. Fantastic. Do you have a, a one line what the, the premise of the book is? Yeah. The one line premise of, a, of the book is contained in a Papers We Love talk that I did and is available on YouTube. We'll, we'll get the link. We'll, we'll post it up there. I love it. What is a tool or methodology that's had a big impact on you? Visual momentum. I love it. We'll also find a link for that as well. What's a trend that you're seeing or following that's been interesting or hasn't hit the mainstream yet? I know the resilience engineering within software has been a, an emerging one in the last five years. Is there something else that comes to mind? A trend that's been happening uh, a bit it's slowly, but the legal prohibition of data collected and, and analysis done in accident investigation, prohibiting its use in administrative or disciplinary reasons. The DOD has it, the US DOD has it, and rail in Canada got it uh, some, some years ago. Uh, the NTSB to some extent has had it, but doesn't have legal, it, they have legal protection, but there's still um, civil, but anyway, it's pretty nerdy. Interesting. And to wrap us all up, John, is there a quote or a mantra that you live by or a quote that's been resonating with you right now? Um, I'll tell you what the unofficial motto of Adaptive Capacity Labs is, which is it's amazing how much progress can be made when the bar is so low to begin with. A great, a great way to, to, to leave us. John, thank you so much for thank you. helping disrupt our, our perspectives and introducing us to a few new, new ways of thinking. But also, Kenji, I just want to say thank you for, for really anchoring us and, and bringing us deep into to your world. Um, so thank you, Kenji. Absolutely. Thank you. It's been a pleasure to be here and have that opportunity to connect with you, John, as well. Uh, certainly a lot to digest and shift in terms of even my own mental models and, and looking forward to learning more beyond this. Yeah, same, same. <laughs> I hope to talk to you uh, uh, both again. Thanks a lot. If you enjoyed the episode, make sure that you click subscribe if you're listening on Apple Podcasts or follow if you're listening on Spotify. And if you love the show, we also have a ton of other ways to stay involved with the engineering leadership community. To stay up to date and learn more about all of our upcoming events, our peer groups, and other programs that are going on, head to sfelc.com. That's sfelc.com. See you next time on the Engineering Leadership Podcast.